Isaiah chapter 11. It's the Lord speaking. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. and kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. If you'll turn me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, for our New Testament reading and our sermon text this morning, we will read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. They remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I had called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, uh, the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us go before uh, the Lord and pray that he would illuminate our hearts to understand uh, this good news. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word and ask uh, that your spirit would attune our hearts uh, to understand uh, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. 
Amen. What do you say to a mother who has lost her baby boy? I'm not sure if there is a picture more tragic that one could see in the news or on television or in stories and then the story of a bereaved mother. Nobody wants to bury a loved one no matter how old they are. Yet we know that it is the duty of children to bury their parents. It is not the duty of parents. Perhaps we should put it more pointedly like this. No parent should ever have to bury her own child. What do you say to such a woman in such moments? What can you say? The mother doesn't want consolation. She wants her child. This morning we're told that the glad tidings of our Savior's birth is this bright shining star that's set against the backdrop of a dark night of murder and infanticide. What comfort could the consolation of Israel ever bring in such times like these? Here, Matthew, I think, beckons us to consider the nation's own misery and sin, that we might know the true joy of the deliverance that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice here that this passage that we're reading this morning, uh, three times uh, the author says that things in the life of Christ were done to fulfill events or prophecies of the Old Testament. So I'd like us to divide the text according to those three fulfillment passages to consider what the prophets say in each of these cases. First, we'll consider the matter of fleeing in verses 13 to 15, then the matter of weeping in verses 16 to 18, and then finally the matter of returning in verses 19 to 23. Fleeing, weeping, returning. Matthew has already tipped his hat to Herod's treachery, hasn't he? As we saw last week, pagan sorcerers have come to worship the promised Messiah. On hearing the news, Herod wants to find out where the Messiah is as well, but for different reasons than the Magi. Whereas these pagans want to worship Christ, Herod, the king on the throne, wants the child put to death. And so begins the satanic assault on the life of the Messiah. Here we find that the Magi are oblivious to Herod's plot. They were what we might say blissfully naive, not aware that Herod was bent on deceiving them to get information from them that he might uh, kill the baby Christ. But here we also find in this passage that Joseph was altogether ignorant of the plot at all. But despite the Magi's obliviousness, despite Joseph's ignorance, there is one who is not ignorant of Herod's schemes. That is the God in heaven. Herod could fool the wisest of men, but he could not fool the searcher of hearts. So the Lord sends an angel to warn both the Magi and Joseph separately. We considered the the warning against the Magi last week, but here uh, we see that Joseph has been instructed to take his wife and child west to Egypt. This is, of course, not the first Joseph we read of in Scripture who is driven from Canaan to Egypt in his flight from his own kin and brothers. But this Joseph, this Mary, they're paupers. We know this from Luke's Gospel. According to the law of Moses, uh, when a child is born, you're to offer a sacrifice. 
go up to the temple and, and, to, and to offer a sacrifice of a lamb, or if you cannot afford it, you can offer two turtle, or a turtle dove or a pigeon. When you read in Luke chapter 2, that's exactly what Joseph and Mary come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer up when Christ is born. It's that of uh, some, some clean birds. This is not a wealthy family. And now an angel instructs Joseph to take his wife and child who couldn't even afford to stay you know, in, in a hotel. There's no place for them in the inn. And now they're expected to travel and make their way to Egypt. How uh, can they finance this? How can they afford it? Matthew does not tell us any of these things, but they, he does tell us this, that Joseph is obedient. I was reading one commentator this week, and he suggests that perhaps the Magi's gifts were given, uh, that were given some months after Christ's birth, supplied Joseph financially with the needs to make his trip. It's speculative, but I think perhaps... Uh, likely. And if that's the case, it shows that the Lord provides for all of Joseph and Mary's needs, for everything that he commands, for them to make their way on their journey. Joseph takes uh, his wife and, and child to Egypt under cover of darkness. Joseph wakes up right away. Again, we're, we're, we're uh, uh, told of Joseph's immediate obedience. Joseph just doesn't simply wake up from the dream and says, well, let me ponder this for a few hours or a few days. So that jo- when Joseph woke up by night, he took his wife and child and they fled to Egypt. Joseph follows the directives given to him down to a T. What I think is interesting here, though, is that Matthew makes a particular statement at the end of this section, he says that this was done to fulfill the words of the prophet, the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Uh, at first glance, him citing this passage might sound like kind of a kind of ornamental, flowery preacherliness. He's just randomly kind of throwing an Old Testament scripture reference your way. And then when you start to think about it, you say, well, this doesn't really makes sense. Joseph isn't taking Christ out of Egypt, he's taking Christ into Egypt. How is it that Matthew could say that by taking Christ into Egypt, uh, that the words of the prophets being fulfilled, that out of Egypt, Christ has been called? Does that make sense? Do you see what it is that's going on? There seems to be some type of conflict going on here. There are older commentators, good commentators, who would say something along those, these lines. They would say, well, Joseph took Jesus to Egypt so that God could call Jesus out of Egypt. Okay, well, they're trying to do justice to the text, so, you know, give, give them credit for that, but I don't think that's what the text is saying here. It's saying that Joseph took Jesus into Egypt. Why? So that these words might be fulfilled, so that in taking Christ into Egypt, in that very act, would be fulfilled the words of the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. What is it that is going on here? Well, if you read Hosea in its fuller context, we get this. This is the broader context of Hosea chapter 11 within the broader context of the whole book of Hosea. The Lord has condemned Israel for being a faithless bride, a harlot pursuing pagan gods. The Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, but Israel continues to rebel. You read the story of Judges, how the Lord continues to deliver Israel time and time again from high idolatry and her slavery as a result of the judgment. You read the rest of the Old Testament, we find that this is a repeated pattern. Israel cries out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord delivers them, and then they revert back to their old way of living. 
In Hosea chapter 11, the prophet foretells the day when Israel would be banished from the land in exile for her sin. And so when you make it to chapter 11, verse 1, the point that the prophet is making is this, is that at the height of Israel's apostasy, Israel looks no different than Egypt of old. That, I think, is the very point that we see here, the point that Matthew is trying to make clear. Judea has become so apostate, it's become so wicked, that it looks like Egypt of old. And to fulfill the words of the prophet Hosea, it is out of Egypt that the Lord has called his son. Egypt now being the nation of Judea. Just as Judea looks like Egypt of old, so we find that the king on Judea's throne looks like the Pharaoh of old. You see that here in verses 16 to 18. As soon as Herod discovers that he had been tricked by the Magi, he erupts into a blazing fury. It's kind of interesting, that that word there for for trickery. We also be translated as mockery. It's the same phrase and the same language that is used in the Greek of Exodus chapter 10, where God is said to have tricked and mocked Pharaoh in sending the ten plagues. Herod deceived the Magi, but now he finds himself to be the butt of the joke. And now he is furious that he has been tricked, that he has been exposed and humiliated. Last week we read that Herod was simply unsettled by the news of Christ's birth. Now he fumes into a burning rage. And just like the Pharaoh of Exodus 1, now Herod commands the slaughter of the Hebrew children. In this case, all males, the age of two and under. Apparently some time has passed since the Magi had shown up. Herod had been waiting for a while and then word reaches him that they're gone. They're long gone. They're back in their home country. And so now to ensure that the Messiah is put to death, he now wants uh, orders uh, to have all the male children in that region slain just to make sure it is state-sanctioned infanticide. Can you imagine the screams of terror heard that night? Not just the cries and the wails coming from a single mother, but from every mother with a child a toddler, for troops to raid every home, to hunt down any potential male toddler. Can you imagine the fear, even if you were not the target? What if this was your only child? What if you were never to have any other? In a single night, your entire family name is snuffed out from existence. You read Revelation chapter 12, I think it rightly describes this event in apocalyptic terms. It is satanic in nature, where the serpent seeks to devour the Messiah as he unleashes his fury on the woman, the nation of Israel. Here we see that the line of Esau is seeking to put to death the descendants of Jacob. What Israel once suffered under Egypt, what Israel once suffered under Babylon, now they suffer under uh, an Edomite that sits on the throne, a descendant of Esau. Where do you turn to for comfort, for vindication in times like this? No child should, uh, no mother should see her child die, but to have her child slaughtered by the very man put in power, whose job it was to ensure the, sa- the welfare of the people. Where do you turn to for that? There is no higher court of appeal. You hear the king ordered this? Where do you turn for justice? Even if vengeance was an option, it wasn't a viable one. How could they take up arms, these 
poor people in the villages and towns against the king who, with armed troops backed by the Roman government. And there's a British mystery author, her name was P.D. James, she wrote a single science fiction novel. Her whole career is a novel they made it into a film a number of years ago called Children of Men. And the premise was this, that all of a sudden, without warning all across the world, without explanation, mothers stopped conceiving. The book takes place about two decades later, actually 18 years later, when everybody realizes that nobody's, not a child on the face of the earth has been born in 18 years. And the human race begins to realize they're on the verge of extinction. There's very, these very poignant scenes in the novel where uh, the, the protagonist is seen walking through empty classrooms, empty schools, empty playgrounds. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to attend, to come to, to, to synagogue the following Sabbath after the mass slaughter, to hear the mother's cry when, you, when it's time to take prayer requests? How do you respond to such suffering? What do you say? What can you say to console them? Can time really heal such a wound? You fast forward a decade and consider yourself the the, the Sunday school teacher or the, the Sabbath school teacher in the local synagogue. You're teaching the fifth graders. And all of a sudden, New Year comes and there's nobody in your class for two years because they were all executed a decade prior. It's all the male children. So this is a terror that is carved and seared and imprinted into the psyche of a people that are bereft of any consolation. There are no words that you can give to console the mothers here. There's only one thing that will be, bring peace. If you were to ask one of these mothers, what do you want more than anything? What will calm you down? There's only one answer that they would give. We all know what that answer is. It's what? I want my child back. And yet we see that's exactly the context that we find where Matthew cites Jeremiah chapter 31. He says these things happen to fill the words of the prophet Jeremiah. He's referring to Jeremiah chapter 31, and he only cites one verse. But remember, the chapters and verses didn't exist in in, uh, the Bible in Matthew's day. And so when he cites a verse, he's drawing your attention to the whole context. And the context we find in Jeremiah 31 is the prophet warns of the judgment that will befall Israel in exile. The height of her sin and her idolatry, there will be weeping and lamentation that is unheard of anywhere else. Mothers refusing to be comforted because their children are no more. That's Jeremiah 31.15. But what does Jeremiah 31.16 say? Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears, for your children shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is still hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return. Is not Ephraim my dear son? Is he not my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I still do remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. To those with ears to hear, to those who know the story, the passage of Jeremiah, Matthew is tipping his hat and hinting that something wonderful is coming. That good will come even from this. 
Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry asks this question, can the Messiah, can the consolation of Israel be introduced with all of this lamentation? How can we read the story and say that the birth of Christ is good news? Well, Matthew's already hinting to us. He's telling us in story form. He's giving us a hint at the goodness that is to come. So Matthew is subtly informing us that Israel's exile is coming to an end and that there is a return from exile that brings with it two things, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead. Be the very consolation that any bereaved parent would long for, that death does not have the final word. Well, just as Moses had, Jesus escapes the fate of the other children. The other children are slaughtered, but Christ, divinely guarded by the Spirit, is brought to Egypt until one day an angel tells Joseph, Herod's dead, you could come home now. So interesting is the angel tells Joseph the very same thing that the Lord had said to Moses when Moses had fled Egypt, that those who sought your life are now dead. We know from other sources that when Herod died, Judea was apportioned among several of Herod's sons. I think most importantly for us this morning, we need to recognize that the kingdom of Israel or Palestine is broken and divided into several different portions. The two most important for us this morning is this, that Archelaus, Herod's son, gets the kingdom of the portion of Judea, and then Galilee is given under the governance of Archelaus' brother, Philip, a man who is much more even-tempered, much more genteel. Archelaus is just as violent as his father was. No less maniacal. Here's a man that's so bad, according to other sources, the Romans would eventually depose Archelaus and banish him to Gaul, modern-day France. But Philip's much more mild-mannered. So when Joseph hears that Archelaus now sits on the throne, he's told to return, but Joseph is terrified. Herod might be dead, but the threat to Christ's life still lurks in the shadows and is a threat that will continue to lurk all the way to Golgotha. Joseph fears the return trip. It does not mean that he was disobedient. It says that he goes, but he's afraid. We might stop and ask ourselves, is such fear sinful? I don't think so. I think sometimes it's good to remind ourselves that fear is sometimes a good thing. We can sometimes see fear as an aspect of wisdom. If I were to fly home to visit my family in Florida and I'm riding a 737 and somebody stands up and tries to open the door to the 737 mid-flight, I have perfect right to be afraid. There's nothing sinful about that. Several times we'll read in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus will withdraw from particular regions as persecution and threats to his life increase because his time had not yet come. So I think what we should recognize here is this, that Joseph continues to obey the angel until the angel tells him to reroute. And Joseph, of course, obeys. Right? Like any other emotion, fear can be good. Like any other emotion, fear can be bad. 
Fear could become disordered. But here we see Joseph submit himself to the Lord's guidance every step of the way. Joseph's fear does not hinder him from doing what the angel tells him, but we see that that fear uh, hints and, and gives... Uh, it, 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 it lets him know that his concerns are not illegitimate because the angel even says, you should go to Galilee. <laughs> Don't go to where Archelaus is. Right, there's a difference between courage and stupidity. We can never allow fear to divert us from carrying up our crosses daily and following Christ. Well, Luke tells us that Joseph has family in Nazareth, and so in accordance with the angel's directives, he returns not to Bethlehem in the south, but to Jerusalem in the north. We need to remember that the Messiah's true identity must remain hidden for a time. Satan is out to kill Christ. Herod other religious leaders are out to kill the Messiah. The identity of the Messiah must remain hidden until the time of his unveiling is to come. That's actually one of the chief themes that you see in Mark's gospel. The hiddenness and the necessity that the Messiah's identity must remain hidden for a period of time. And with all the other male children in Judea dead, if Jesus were to return to Bethlehem, he'd, let's be honest, he'd stick out like a sore thumb. If everybody knows that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem and that the Messiah had been born and that all, all those who are qualified within this particular range have, have now been put to death and then Jesus shows up, his identity would be revealed. And so it, it makes sense that Joseph takes Christ to Nazareth. And in fact, Matthew says that this was done as well to fulfill what was spoken, not simply by one, but if you look here, but by several prophets. Thus it was fulfilled by the prophets he would be called a Nazarene. But where in the Bible does it say that? You try to do a word search, you're not going to find Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or any of these other prophets saying, you know, the prophet must live in Nazareth. So how is it that Matthew is saying, is he just making up a prophetic text? Or is he citing an, uh, a non-biblical prophetic text? I don't think the, the answer is in the affirmative for either. You know, again, older commentators say that this has to do with the, the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. But when you read what the Nazarites were to do, they you know, were never to cut their hair and they were never to drink. Well, the gospel authors never say anything about Jesus' hair length for better or for worse. It doesn't say anything about that. It does say that John the Baptist came and he did not drink, and Jesus came and he did. Jesus, in fact, his first miracle is he turns water to wine. He's actually accused of being a wine-bibber by his opponents. So it's clear that Jesus would partake in wine, at least on occasion. So I don't think Jesus had undergone any type of Nazarite vow. So it leaves us with the question, well, what is meant here? Well, what I think Matthew is doing is he's engaging in some type of wordplay. Follow me here. The Hebrew word, nutzar, like from Nazarene, it means branch. And when you read the Old Testament, the branch becomes the nickname that the prophets give for the son of David who will ascend the throne. 
Think of Isaiah chapter 5 when the Lord pronounces judgment on Israel. He declares Israel to be his, his precious vineyard, but on account of her idolatry and her sin, he will cut her down to the very root. The very same message that John the Baptist will give in the next chapter. And yet from that root will appear what? A branch from the line of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will raise up for David a righteous, not czar, a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely, and he will do righteousness and justice in the land. Zechariah chapter 3, where he says, Now listen, you high priests, you are but only a symbol of the true high priest to come, my servant, the branch. I think this is why Matthew can say, so says the prophets, plural. What Matthew is doing is he's referring to a cluster of Old Testament prophecies regarding the branch, the Nazar, the Nazarene. So here comes Christ, hot Nazar, coming to live in Nazareth. Does that make sense? It's not that the prophet said that he would grow up in a town called Nazareth. Rather, there's great biblical irony here that just as the Messiah's identity remains hidden, there seems to be a massive neon light shining over the town saying, here is where the, the Nazarene, the branch, comes to live, and nobody's able to see it. It's like watching a movie mystery. You find that all these clues are, are, are hinted and dropped out all through the movie, but you don't realize it till the turn at the very end. And then it causes you to, to, read the, to see the whole movie once again in a whole new light where you're pointing out like every 30 seconds, like, oh, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe they said it. It's, it's foreshadowing to the utmost. The fact that the branch would come to live in branch land is essentially what we're seeing here. I think the initial response, Matthew's audience would go something like this. Just as the prophets had said, he would come from Nazareth. And everybody goes, where? Nazareth is not a big town. It's not mentioned earlier in Scripture. It's located in Gentile country. You think even in Jesus' own ministry. I think it's John chapter 7. All these people go, well, isn't this the son of Joseph in Nazareth? Where did the Scripture say that the Messiah would come from Nazareth? Or you think of John chapter 1 when, when Philip comes to, to say to his brother Andrew, hey, look, we finally found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. What's Andrew's response? Anything good to come from that? Where? And yet that's also part and parcel of the branch prophetic texts. Isaiah chapter 52, that the Messiah who grows up before the Lord like a tender branch has no stately form or majesty that anyone would look upon him. He's one who is despised and, and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He, he's one of uh, no consequence. He's a man of no reputation. Here the Messiah comes growing up in a town of no reputation. A backwater town that just so happens to be called, as it were, Branchland, Nazarene, Nazareth. Nobody knew his real identity. So what are we to make of this passage? What is it that's going on here? What is, what is Matthew trying to tell us? Is he, is he simply opening up to us the story of the birth of our Savior in the beginning years of his life? Well, I think there are three things 
of significance as we continue our way through Matthew's gospel. The first is this, Matthew hints to us the state of the nation. As we saw in that first fulfillment passage, Israel is a new Egypt. Herod is another Pharaoh. So what does that make Jesus? A new Moses. In fact, a better Moses, as we're going to find in chapter 3. One who will secure the very thing that her people need, that, Israel's, that Israel needs to bring alienation from God's presence to an end, to bring their time of exile to a close. What is needed? Well, what is it that separates man from God? It's sin. What is needed then is the forgiveness of sins. And that is the very thing that Jesus, why Jesus is called Jesus according to the angel in Matthew 1. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Jesus means what Joshua means, what Yahweh saves. Why will you call his name Yahshua? Well, because he will save his people. The Lord will save his people from what? From the Romans? From Herod? From Archelaus? No, he will save his people from something far more dastardly. Save his people from their very sins. Second, what we find in this passage is, is this rhythmic repetition where we find the same phrase repeated three times. All of this was done to fulfill the words of the prophet or the prophets. Everything from Joseph's midnight flight to Herod's mass infanticide to Jesus growing up in the middle of nowhere, living in relative obscurity. There's a lot of terror in this passage. There's a lot of sorrow and heartache. Not once does the Bible tell us that all things that happen are good. Not once. But the Bible does say this, that the Lord orders all things for our good. There's a big difference between the two. One says that everything that happens is great and you should just keep the smile on your face. The other is a declaration and confession that we serve a God who is so good, who is most good, who is in fact goodness itself, that he can even make good come from evil. What other God can do that? What God can bring good from evil? And yet that's the very thing that we see here. When tragedy strikes, we're not to resign ourselves like Stoics or Buddhists or Muslims, keep a smile slapped on our face and say, well, God wills it. No, as Scripture teaches us that we have a God to whom we can turn for comfort in the midst of sorrow, and a God who has promised that for those who love God and who are the called according to His purpose, He will so order all things together for their good, for your good. And for mine. So him we'll sing in a little bit. Whatever my God ordains is right. And when we sing that hymn, I'd encourage everyone here to pay attention to what we're singing. I know it's so easy to kind of gloss over the last hymn. So we're about to go. But I think the lyrics are important. They remind us of deep scriptural truths. Or even the words of Psalm 23, that the Lord leads us in his righteousness, even when that path passes through the valley of the shadow of death. We have a God who is with us. And here we are told of God with us, our Emmanuel. Consider the words of consolation that are given here. Even as the prophet Jeremiah speaks to Rachel, 
the, the matriarch of that region, so to speak, says, Rachel, why do you weep? Your children have died, will weep no more, for they are my children too, says the Lord. I will surely have mercy. I will bring them back from the land where they have gone. How is such a thing possible? I return to the first question I asked at the beginning of the sermon. What consolation could one ever give a bereaved mother? And here we find the consolation that the Lord Himself gives the bereaved is this. It is the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And I think this is our most significant feature Because here we are told the story of Christ for us. We read here as the Lord delivered Christ from the fury of one Herod. And yet as we will find decades later, he will only be handed over to the fury of another Herod. Herod Agrippa. So often we think of Christ's sorrows beginning only at the cross or perhaps during the week of his passion, or perhaps at the onset of his early ministry. But what Matthew is beginning to spell out for us is this, that Christ suffered horrendously from the cradle to the grave. Even from his, uh, from his birth, he is, he, is, he is a marked man. He is on the run even as a child. Isaiah says he's a man of sorrows. Matthew fills this out more fully, and we can even properly say that Christ was a child of sorrow. We ask why? Why did he undergo all this suffering? Why all of this sorrow? Hebrews tells us is that he might become a faithful high priest, one who ever lives above, who can sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. How easy is it to be tempted to say that God doesn't understand what I'm going through? in the midst of deepest sorrow? Do you think God doesn't know the trials you presently face? Do you think God does not care? Well, I think Matthew is here telling us to banish those thoughts. Christ knows what it is like to suffer. So that in our our deepest moments of pain and despair, we can look at the cross, the apex of suffering, where Christ is not only humiliated and abandoned by his friends, betrayed by a disciple, handed over to the Roman government, he's also abandoned by the Father, forsaken at the cross, as he bears the judgment of sin, though he did not deserve it, so that we might inherit the blessings of heaven, that we might receive the promised salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and even the resurrection of from the dead. As the good news that awaits as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew is that not even death will have the last word, that in Christ death is put to death, will be slain forevermore at the day of Christ's return. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the consolation you give us. Uh, We pray that we would uh, turn to our Savior in times of deep distress, knowing that we have one who holds the power of an indestructible life and is with us and for us, being ever ready to give us every grace and comfort needed to endure through this passing age. Bless us, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.